So this evening, I would like to look at the 10 Oxerding picture, which is a series of images that you find in the Zen tradition and actually show the, the path in images. So you kind of show the different stages of the path. And these pictures were created in China many, many centuries ago, and now you, see, you see, find them either in black and white in painting, or if you go to China and Korea and Japan, you find them in color, kind of painted all around the, the ten pictures around the temples. And so the way I want to look at it now is more in terms of our practice, not so much in terms of, because traditionally you have a series of poems and series of commentary. But I want more to look at the images to see what do they say about our practice? What do they say about the different stages we might find ourselves in when we practice the meditative path? And each picture has a title. And so I will just say the title, describe a little the images, and then kind of talk around the image. So the story, I mean, there is a story in these 10 pictures. The story is that you have an ox herder, so a little young boy, or a little kind of pigtail, and you have an ox. But at the beginning, the first picture is called Searching for the Ox. So the, there is a little ox herder is in the picture, and there is some bushes, and there is some trees, and he look like he's looking for something. And he doesn't know where to look, how to look. And to me, this is, in a way, what I would say, is kind of, in a way, the root, the spring from which we start the practice, is when, at some point in our life, we start to feel that something is missing. And also it's a point where we start to look beyond our limits, beyond what we think is a life to be lived. And often I think there is some tension, there might be some suffering, and so we look to release this tension. We look for something to make us a little happier, to make us a little feeling more at ease, more at peace, more contented. And then, we flit here and there. We look here, we look there. And so we might look in the material world, trying to have a good job or a good house. We might look in the emotional world, trying to find the relationship which will really bring us happiness. And we look in all kinds of different ways. We think something outside of us is going to bring us that happiness, that peace, that satisfaction. But I think at that stage, that searching stage, we start to have an inkling that we cannot look for it outside of ourselves. Because we try with jobs, or we try to earn money, or we try the relationship, and all these things are very nice, but they don't give us that. They don't take away the suffering, they don't take away the tension. And this can happen to us at any given time, at all different kind of ages. 
I know for myself, it started when I was 18 and 19. And I was so idealistic. I wanted the world to be a beautiful place and I wanted to save it and do all kinds of things. And at the same time, I could see that I could not deal with my mind and my feelings as I wanted. I could tell myself, don't be jealous. did not work. I could... It did not work. Something... I wanted something more than just ideas in a way. Or if I think of friends of mine, I greatly admire. And she's passed away now, but she, she was from a very wealthy cultural family in Switzerland. And age 55, she left everything. And she just went to India and went to Dharamsala and became a nun. And had a very, very simple, poor life there. But she said she found happiness there. She found peace there that she'd been looking all her life. But that was, in a way, not the end of her journey. And to me, that's what is inspiring. When she was 75, and she'd been a nun for 20 years, she came to me and Stephen, and she said, you know, I have to ask you something. We said, all right. And she said, I want to stop being a nun. What do you think? <laughs> and we were so conventional. And we said, oh, but you are such an example, and you're so inspiring. We think it'd be good if you stayed being a nun. <laughs> But she did not listen to us, and she stopped being a nun because she wanted to be more free. I mean, it did not mean she stopped practicing, she did the same thing she did. But to me, this was very inspiring, that, you know, she kept searching, she kept looking for different aspects of herself. Then you have the next picture, and it's called Seeing the Footprint. <coughs> and here, you have the little oxoda and he's seeing footprint. Looks not elephant footprint, but it looks like ox footprint. <laughs> and this, I think, for us is when we start to find spiritual idea, and they start to resonate within us. We see, we find traces. We read books. We hear poetry. And I remember when I was uh, twenty, and I started to be interested in <laughs> spiritual books, and I would hear, I would read. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And as you think, yes, yes, yes. You know, <laughs> or I would hear this poem. The swallow flies through the sky. They leave no traces. The, bam the bamboo shadow sweeps the steps, but no dust is stirred. And, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know? And it's kind of like something resonates. We kind of think, yeah, yeah, I like this. And at the same time, it's very important to kind of look, like the Oxerder has to look. Is it old or new traces? Are there relevant traces or not? Are they meaningful or not to myself, those traces? And, and I know that's what I experienced at that time. When I was 20 and I really was sort of, I decided to go the spiritual way. Meditation was it and awareness and all these things. And in those days, in the 70s, Krishnamurti was very big. And so, you know, I started to read Krishnamurti and he was saying, be aware. You know, there is nothing else to do. Be aware. 
And so I thought, you know, I want to do that. And so I took a blanket and I went up the mountain. With no food, I was going to fast for three days and I was going to do it, just like he said. So I sat in this huge, beautiful field in the Alps and I sat and I looked and not much happened. <laughs> so I would look at the book and he would say, be aware, look. <laughs> not much happened, then I would read again, then I would look again. I did this a whole afternoon. And then I thought, this is not working. So I went down from the mountain. <laughs> so in a way, we find those traces. But in a way, this is in a way, at that point, we don't really know what these traces are. It's just more like a, there is something there, but it's a little amorphous. <coughs> and then there is the next picture, which is called seeing the ox tail. And there you have the, the bushes, and the ox herder sees the bottom of the ox, and he sees the tail flickering. Oops, it's there, oops, it's over there. So he knows, now he knows, that the ox is there, but it's very flickering, it's very fleeting. And to me, this is a stage where we want to go beyond the words, just beyond something which is attracted, and then we want to try to practice, we want to do it. But then we encounter so many different paths, so many different methods. And in a way, again, there is a question. What I found, it's like a spiritual marketplace. Does it fit? Is it inspiring? Is it meaningful? Can it be beneficial? And in a way, the only way to know if it fits, if it's beneficial, if it's meaningful, is to try it out. <laughs> So then I think at that stage, we try all kinds of things, all kinds of weird and wonderful things. I know for myself, in those days, there was less than nowadays, but still there was a few things. And the first thing I tried was Taoism by correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would get these little notes, and one of the first exercises I had to do was to lie down in bed and imagine myself floating to the corner of the ceiling. But I never made it. <laughs> so after a month, I stopped the Taoism by correspondence. <laughs> and then all my friends were into Rashnish. So I thought, I'll try that. So after work, every day after work, I used to work in a low society, after work, I went to hyperventilate naked with 20 other people. <laughs> And after a week, you could do another week, and I thought, uh-uh. This doesn't seem to work for me. So all my friends continued, but I did not. So in a way, there are so many things. And in a way, how can we know which is a good one? This is always a question, I think, what this picture is about. And <coughs> even if you look at the... Buddhist tradition, <laughs> even within the Buddhist tradition, you have many different paths. You have many different options. I know for myself in those days, I met great Tibetan lamas. And then I also went to Thailand and I saw the, the monks in Thailand. But each time I thought, hmm, something did not fit. Something did not fit. I did not think this was what would fit me. 
And then finally, I ended up in Korea. And then, yes, that fitted me. So I think it's not a question that the tradition is the best, is the shortest to enlightenment, or whatever it is. I think it's more, does it fit? Does it make sense? Do you resonate with the tradition? And then this leads us to the fourth picture, which is called catching the ox. And there, finally, the ox herder has caught the ox with a rope. And he's holding really tightly, because the ox doesn't want to be caught. And to me, this is, in a way, the most powerful picture. And this is actually when we really decide to do it. But, like, seriously, we're really going to do this. And at that moment, we realize that it is not as easy as it looks. You know, the great way, the swallows, you know, this is very nice. But actually, in a way, the sitting down, doing the meditation, this is what really requires energy, what really requires effort. Because in a way, at that moment, we decide to become totally involved with the whole body and mind. And we're saying, I am going to do that. And then at that moment, when you go from the relatively romantic, abstract, exotic, to actually the, really the practicality of sitting down in meditation, of crossing the leg, of trying to focus the mind, then it's extremely difficult. And so that's why this picture, I think, needs a lot of power. We need a lot of determination just to hold on. Because in a way, at that moment, when we really decide to do it, we're confronted by all our habits, our mental, emotional, physical habits. I remember for myself, when I ended up in Korea and I decided to become a nun, and I started my first three months retreat, I had never meditated more, more than 10 minutes once a day in Thailand for about a week. And here I was sitting 10 hours a day, from 3 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night. And it was awful, you know? I was sitting there and it was painful. I could not breathe and I could not concentrate. And finally I sat in front of the open door so I could kind of at least uh, see what was outside to kind of uh, distract me a bit. And it was tough. It was really tough. And I did not feel I could really do it. So then I would disappear. I would do the first sitting, and then I would go. And then I would come back from the next first sitting, and then I would go. And I always had very good excuses. Oh, yes, be better to, you know, to learn Korean, more useful than just sitting here in pain, you know. And then one day, Master Cousin came to sit with us. And so I said, oh, well, he's here. I must make an effort. So I really, yes, yes, you know, I'm going to concentrate. Yes, what is this? What is this? <laughs> so I really, really tried. Really tried. And then at the end of it, I was so exhausted. And I thought, you can't stay. I am off. I have learning Korean or something. And then when I came back, the leader of the hall had a little dictionary in hand and said, you know, Master Kuzan noticed you went away. And he said this. So we can look at the dictionary together. And he said, Okchiro Tamta, you had to bear beyond strength. And then I thought, hmm, I must bear beyond strength. 
And I, then I reflected that, you know, they'd been doing this for the last at least 800 years, and nobody died of it. So <laughs> possibly I could too do it. And this was, in a way, my, my first, I would say, breakthrough in terms of the practice, because after that, I did not miss a city. And I was the first one to arrive, and it was not easier, in a way, but I was determined to do it. Finally, I was dedicating myself to it, saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm really doing this. No matter what happened, I am doing this. And I think we need at one point to do that. And I think, in a way, you sitting this retreat is doing that, is actually saying, this is it. I am going to do this. I'm going to do seriously. And then at that moment, there is that great power that you are kind of put out, you manifest, even if it's not easy every time. And then there is the next picture, and it's called Tending the Ox. And then here, the ox is very calm, but still there is a rope. And the little ox herder <coughs> is holding the rope very loosely, and they're walking together in the same direction. And this is when we become more familiar with the practice. And then we know what to do. We know how to practice. We know what to do in the practice. There is no struggle anymore, and there is just applying ourselves. So we don't need to fight anymore. It's not a struggle. The body has become easier with the sitting, the mind too, the heart. So we, yes, we can do this. We become familiar. There is kind of a little more ease with it. And at the same time, we need to keep an eye. We need to be vigilant. And that's why the little oxer is still holding the rope. Because although it seems to be much easier, at times we might still get into difficulty. And my teacher used to say, sometimes when you see it, it is as easy as pushing a boat on ice. It just goes by itself. <coughs> and then sometimes you see it, and it is as difficult as dragging a cow to drink the water, and she doesn't want to go there. And so there is very little movement. And so sometimes we can't eat patches in our practice. I know for myself, once during <coughs> a three-month retreat in Korea, in the middle of it, suddenly nothing. For two weeks, I could not ask the question. Either I was sleepy, either I was having lots of thought, anything but the question. And I tried, and I was getting up at 3 o'clock, going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, and I and you don't leave. I mean, the, you don't leave the three months retreat because it's not working. You just have to stay there. You're committed to the three months. So every day, you know, I just, again, tried my 10 hours. And every day, it was so difficult. And then after two months, two, two weeks, suddenly it shifted. And then it became very easy. So in a way, I think this is a stage where it's much easier, but still, we might kind of have some difficulty. And then there is a sixth picture, and it's called Riding the Ox Back Home. And there, you, the rope is gone, and the little ox herder is sitting on top of the ox, and he's playing the flute. And the ox knows the way by itself. He doesn't have to guide the ox. The ox just go by itself. And to me, this is a picture of ease, of lightness, 
of freedom, of joy, of creativity. And also it shows that the practice is not always a dour thing. That it is terrible, it's painful, but it's good for me. I, to me, the practice cannot just be difficult or hard work. But we also, over time, find a certain ease with it. We just we sit and we feel a little a certain lightness, not just in the sitting, but also a certain lightness in our life. Also, the meditation helps us to be more creative in many different ways in our life. And also, there is a little more joy. We kind of become more kind of a simple joy of just the joy of being alive. And I remember <coughs> when I was in Korea, Master Kuzan was kind of, you know, he was a little heavy set, but when he walked, there was this lightness to his walking, like there was a, a lightness to his being, that actually he could nearly transmit to you, that kind of when you were with him, with him you generally feel much lighter. And that's what I noticed in the monastery or the nunnery, that at the beginning, when you had the, the postulant and the young monks and nuns, they were very serious. And they were a little tense, you know. And there was this, this kind, of, kind of tension in them. But if you saw the monks and the nuns who had practiced 30, 40 years, there was a lightness to them. There was a humor to them. There was something about them which was much lighter. And to me, this is an important part of the stages, that there is this fluidity, and also we know the way. There is no expectation anymore. We just sit in meditation for its own sake. Because I think up to here, when we sit, we expect something. I want this, I want that. But I think there is a stage in meditation where you actually do it for just doing the sitting. You're not doing to get this and that, you just do it. And in the doing of it, in a way, there is an experiencing of the meditation. There is an experiencing of the Buddha nature. <coughs> then there is a seventh picture. And it's called Forgetting the Ox, the person rests alone. So the ox has gone. All this work for the looking of the ox, and now it's gone. Not necessary anymore. And then you just have a little house, and you have the moon, and the little ox herder is just watching the moon. And this stage, I think, is when finally there is no separation between meditation and our daily life. Because I think up to a certain point, we always are quite conscious, I am meditating here. I am doing the meditation. But I feel there is a stage where actually the meditation does itself. And then the meditation is not just on the cushion on retreat, but it's very much this kind of creative awareness. We take in everything we do. When we speak with people, when we listen to people, when we work, when we rest, when we walk. And in a way, we stop to make that difference with I am spiritual, this is not spiritual. But in a way, everything is an opportunity to be aware, to be spiritual, to be creative, in a way to be awakened, to be present to what's going on. And so then, I think, there is, it's not like we have to work at it anymore. 
I think it's just naturally there is this awareness. There is this awareness in the post office, in the supermarket. There is this awareness at any given moment. You can be aware at any given moment. We can be in that meditative space of not grasping. And I think also this, to have reached this stage, I think helps us to rest more in life, to rest more in the moment, just like a little oxerder, just resting, gazing at the moon, and this is enough. Because I think often within ourselves there, there is this need for excitement. And often people come to me and say, meditation, it's okay, but it's a bit boring. <laughs> Personally, I never find meditation boring. I just do it, but I have really am not bored by it. And I think, personally, it's a little cheap to be bored. Because, you know, there is a million years of evolution. All the hard work of evolution, of life, the little things coming out of the waters and getting the legs, and all these million years of evolution. For us to be sitting here, to be alive, and then you say, I am bored. All that work for nothing. <laughs> and to me, I think, in a way, this stage is when we go beyond that desire for excitement all the time and just appreciate, just to be alive, just to rest at ease in the moment. Then there is an eighth picture, <coughs> and it's called The Ox and the Ox Herder are both forgotten. Again, all this work, and now they're gone. And instead of them, you have a circle, like one of these Zen circles. And again, it's not that literally we become like a circle, or literally we kind of go into this empty space. But the thing is, when finally we experience, at time, this letting go of our grip, letting go of our holding, and we start to experience ourselves more as a flow of condition. And so there is less that kind of fixity of me, mine, I, and more the, this flow of condition. To me, that's what the meditation is about, to discover more and more the conditions that forms us, and to see how is this play between our inner condition and our outer <coughs> condition, and that, of course, they're relatively changing, but also there is a relative constancy. To say that things are empty, to say that things are conditional, doesn't mean that everything is changing every second. Tomorrow morning, I doubt that I will be sitting here and I will be a giraffe. This, I think, is relatively unlikely. I mean, I could look more tired or less tired or something dreadful could happen in the night, but I don't think I will be a giraffe tomorrow. So I think the emptiness doesn't mean that all of us disappear in an empty hole. And the fact that things are conditioned doesn't mean that everything is all the time changing, but that there is conditionality and that there is changing nature. And that's what emptiness means. Emptiness is not a thing. We're not looking for emptiness. But I think emptiness is seeing that we are not fixed, we're not solid. We are, in a way, this coming together of these conditions. 
and that we can work with this condition in a positive way. And to me, sometimes I think it would be an interesting experience. Instead of saying, I do this, this is my cushion, to say, this flow of condition is doing this. This flow of condition is using this cushion. Because already it makes it less fixed. It makes it a little like kind of less, kind of reified, less solid. And also, <coughs> I think at that point, we realize and we experience, which I think is very freeing in terms of the suffering, that we cannot reduce ourselves to any one of the conditions that forms us. We cannot define ourselves by one condition. Because I think often that's what we do. We grasp at a thought and we identify with that thought. And we reduce ourselves to that thought, which is very painful. Or we identify, grasp at a feeling, and we reduce ourselves to a feeling, or to a sensation, or to a situation, or to a problem, or whatever it is. And it seems to me at that stage, we realize we don't have to do that. Yes, we have this thought. Yes, we have the feeling. Yes, we have the situation. But we cannot reduce ourselves to that. We are much more multidimensional and multi-perspectival than that. And to me, that's what, in a way, emptiness is about, making us see how multi-perspectival, how multidimensional we are. And at the same time, we have, not, we have to be careful not to think that emptiness is the end of the path, because this is only the eighth picture, and we still have two more pictures to go. And because often this is a growl in the Zen tradition, emptiness, awakening of empty, or emptiness. This is the two things that you know, everybody is fixed upon, waiting, that kind of it's going to happen. And once we had a fellow like this in Korea in the temple, he practiced really hard, and then suddenly he had this amazing experience of emptiness. And he thought, this is it, I am awakened. So he rushed to Master Kuzan. He said, Master, Master, I am awakened. Everything is empty. So Master Kuzan took his stick, hit him on the arm, and he Ouch! You say not everything is empty. <laughs> Go back to the mountain to practice. So emptiness is only one stage on the path. But there is two more pictures, and the ninth is called returning to the original place. And there you again have the tree or bamboo or plum blossom. And in a way it shows we have to go a stage further, a stage of interconnection, interdependence, and to see that there is no separation between ourselves and the world, that we are totally interdependent, totally interconnected with the world. Because if we just reflect on our life, we know that everything, all our life, depends on something outside of myself. The air I breathe, the food I take, the water I drink, the clothes I wear, the house I live in. All this I have not built myself. All this comes from outside of myself. And this is what sustains me. And I think at that stage we go back to the world with this clearer view of our, in a way, total connection with the world, with life. 
with all that in a way sustain us and also how we are part of the world and how we are connected to it and contribute to it. <laughs> and also I think the picture of nature is also showing that everything can teach us. This was one of a very important thing for my teacher, Master Kuzan. He used to say again and again, listen to that bird. This is a great Dharma teaching. Look at nature. This is a great Dharma teaching. And one of the examples he used to give us is his orchids, which was blooming in the mountain. And he said there is this wonderful orchid in the mountain, and it has an amazing fragrance, which can go kilometers. And he used to say, this is a great Dharma teaching. Maybe very few people can smell this fragrance. Maybe very few people will see the orchid. But it doesn't stop the orchid from just spreading the fragrance for everybody who might come to smell it. And in the same way, can we be open to the world in that non-expecting way where we just give whatever to the world with total open-endedness? And then there is a last stage, the last picture, number 10, and it's called appearing in the marketplace with gifts. And there the oxider reappears, and then next to him appear kind of little, kind of a pod-bellied monks with a big bag and ragged shoes. And the big bag is in a way all the gift, because all this practice is not just to practice in a way, but all this practice is to really open, remove the obstacle to our wisdom and compassion. So the last image is very much about compassion, but creative wise compassion. So in the bag, there is lots of gifts to give to appropriately to the people who ask and also to the people who need them. And also the shoes, ragged shoes, the adaptation of high and low. There is no separation in a way. You don't pick and choose. You really open-ended go back to the marketplace and try to serve the people as you meet them, as they need it. And so very much it is that the meditation is not just for our own sake, but actually is to help us to have a more creative-wise, compassionate response so that then we can manifest the compassion, we can also cultivate the compassion. And so this creative wise compassion, I think one part of it is listening. It's kind of in a way, when we go in the 10 stages, we listen, like the Stephen must have mentioned, listen to the cries of the world. We become more aware of ourselves, we become more aware of others. So we're not so caught up in ourselves. We can be really open. We see others, we listen to others. We are open, available to them. And then we reach out in whatever way we can. And then again, we have to see the compassion for self, the compassion for others, and also to check what is needed. Can I give it or not? And how can I give it? And when I, <coughs> when I was in Korea, doing some research, I met this very interesting nun, a Buddhist nun, and she was doing many different things, which were very unusual in those days. Now it's a bit different for a Korean nun. First, she was a DJ on a Buddhist radio. 
of classical music because she thought that music was a, a way to reach people in a spiritual manner. Also, she was uh, organizing like a kind of a, a radio program for people in difficulty, put people together. And also she used to help out at a telephone, Buddhist telephone compassionate line, a little like the Samaritan. And to me, this was a great inspiring example of somebody trying, she was doing the meditation and being a normal nun, and at the same time trying to reach out in different ways to people in different, that it be through the music or through the program or through the telephone. So that in a way there are many different ways to be creative, to be wise, to be compassionate. Or if I think of another nun I met, and she was uh, taking uh, care of, uh, she built, and uh, taking care of uh, all women's home for all nun and all women who did not have any family. And I asked her how come she was doing this. And she said, well, first I became a nun, and I wanted to awaken, and I wanted to save everybody. And then so, I, you know, I did the study, and I did some meditation. And then as I was sitting there, one day I thought, if they have to wait for me to awaken before I can do something for them, they might have to wait a long time. <laughs> so then she decided maybe she could do meditation, try to be awakened, and at the same time help the people. Because in a way, often that's what I found when I was uh, in Korea doing this research. That's what I would ask people, you know, what about compassion? And then sometimes I remember this really traditional nun. When I said, what about compassion? She said, compassion? Forget it. Unless you're awake, it is not true compassion. <coughs> and this is certainly one point of view in the tradition, that one has to really practice hard and be really clear oneself because one can help others. <coughs> but at the same time, I thought it was quite a good idea that, uh, that none with all people's home, that to do the two together. Personally, I think it's a good idea, because if you really wait till you have really, really, really got the awakening, it's true, you might have to wait a long time. And so in a way, I think what is important in our life is to see <coughs> in what way can we be compassionate? In what way can we be creatively, wisely compassionate to ourselves and others? And I think to, to go beyond this idea of compassion as something heroic of compassion as a duty. <coughs> I am a Buddhist, I must be compassionate. But more as his availability to the suffering of others. And I think it's very important. And then, of course, it might not always be very comfortable to be with suffering. But I think this is part of the practice. To, in a way, help us to be more stable and open so that we can be more able to be with suffering and at the same time, respond to it. Then, <coughs> then in terms of the ten images, it's very important to see that it is not linear. It's not you have first, number two, number three, and you kind of like go in a linear way. Personally, I think the image are more like a spiral, so that actually you go up and you might go back to some of the earlier images. So you might be practicing for 10 years, and then you might go back to the first images where you feel something is missing in my practice. I need maybe to add something. Or you might go back to the fourth picture, 
where suddenly it feels a little difficult and you have to put more energy. So I think again to see that often we revisit in different ways these different images. And maybe even during this retreat, you might have already revisited some of these images. So that's what I wanted to say today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.